Let's turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first five verses again. If you are new with us today, we want to extend you a very special welcome. My name is Jeff Kennedy. I'm the senior pastor here, and we are starting a series through the Gospel of John called The Glory of the One and Only. And I want to encourage you because if you're anything like me and my wife, and you've had a really tough week, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to push pause on the concerns and the heartache and the stuff that you brought in the door with you. And I just want us all together to turn our attention to the glory of God's one and only Son. And I think if we do that this morning, God will lift us, he will fill us, and we will walk out that door different than when we came in. And we will have the resources we need to meet the challenges uh, of everyday life. And so I'm gonna encourage you with that. I'm gonna start with uh, kind of a story. Uh, My father-in-law, Lorne Neubauer, very German name, Uh, Lauren uh, grew up the son of a silver miner in North Idaho. Anybody ever been to Wallace and like been, has anybody ever been through one of the mine tours up there? Anybody? Yeah, just a few of you. So you know just how terrifying that is. It's terrifying. My father-in-law just, he was telling me about his life as a miner and he grew up the son of a miner and then as soon as he was old enough, he, that's what he did for a living. And I couldn't fathom that. Like, I couldn't fathom making my living going into a cave, which is literally what you do. You walk, they say, hey, come, come to the mine tour. And there's a few little, like, lights, like little flickering lights that look like they're about to go off and leave you buried under rock. And then you walk into a cave. And I don't know about you, if you've been there, if you've done that, it feels to me like every step I take, the cave is closing in on me. And so it's a very claustrophobic experience. But the thing that I took away from it is just how dark it is. When you get into the mountain, uh, it's pitch dark. If there's not electric light or a little lamp on your hat, your little hard hat that you're wearing, if you don't have that, you couldn't see your fingers in front of your face. There is no natural source of light. So I told that to my father-in-law. He goes, oh man, let me tell you a story. Back in the day, in my dad's day, and before that, what they used to do is they used to mine out and haul all the ore. I don't even know what that is, but they used to haul all that stuff out with mules, like mules and donkeys, right? And so he told me that, and I was like, really? Like, how did they do that? And so he's telling me the story. He goes, then, but after a few generations of these things, some of those mules and those donkeys, they, they, were born down there. They had never seen natural light. And he said, when the age of machinery came and all the machines came in and replaced all of those mules and those horses, he said, we, they brought them up to the surface, the ones that had been born down there, and as soon as they came out of the cave into the light, they went blind. And it's because they had never seen light and their photoreceptors in their eyes had never developed the sensitivity to light. And so what we're going to learn today is that in him was the life and the light. And of course, God is not going to just translate you into the high beams of heaven's glory. He wouldn't do that to you. He would burn you down with the radiance and glory of his being. So what God does is he embodies his glory. He embodies it in a human life and through the filter Through the lenses of this human life, you and I behold the glory of the one and only. Amen? All right, let's do it. 
So today we're going to explore this word of life. Now John's gospel, just by way of recap, we're going to do this really quickly. If you missed any of this, don't take notes. Go back and get the message from last week because we covered all this last week. John's gospel, as we noted, is a theological memoir. It, it, these stories are the personal reminiscences, the personal memories of John. Have you ever noticed how the language of Jesus looks a little different than it does in Matthew's gospel? Have you ever wondered why that is? That's because Matthew is recording formal speeches and discourses that Jesus gave on the hillside or in the synagogue, formal sermons. What is John recording? John the beloved one. He's telling you what Jesus' voice sounded like in person behind closed doors when there weren't a lot of people around. And he's giving you that intimate timbre of Jesus' voice and he wants you to hear it. He knows you have the synoptic gospels. He knows you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he wants to show you what it was like to be in a closed room with Jesus, listening to him pray for you to the Father. So the stories are historical, but they're memoirs. They're the personal reminiscences of John around his theme. What's his theme? There are three passages you need to know. We said last week, John 20. In John 20, 30 through 31, he says, therefore, here's the purpose. Here's the theme. Many other signs. Remember we said, whenever you see the word semea or signs, it's signs, sayings, and symbols. So many other signs. Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. He says, but these have been written so that you may believe. Why? So that you will believe what? That Jesus, Yeshua, this man from Nazareth, is God's true Mashiach. That word is Messiah. That word is translated into Greek as Christos. That word means Christ, the anointed king of Israel. He says, we wanted you to know that through these signs, Jesus demonstrated the truth that he is God's true Messiah and that he is God's unique son from eternity, the son of God. That's what he means by the son of God. And that believe, by believing you may have life in his name. You can't have life in any other name. There's no other name in heaven and on, on, and on earth that will give you this life. But how do we believe the signs? How do we believe the signs? Even an atheist and a skeptic of the New Testament could read all the stories in the Gospel of John and just not believe them. How do you come to believe them? The key there is John 2, 2. After this miracle of turning water into wine, he says what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the key. In order to believe the signs you got to see the glory. In order to believe that these things are true, there is a spiritual insight of seeing God revealing himself in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. He says it again in John 1.14. He says, the word became fleshed. That phrase literally means the word was enfleshed. It was enfleshed. And, and it tabernacled, it dwelled, it tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. And what does he say here? He says, so in this one human life, God revealed the light of his truth, the radiance of his glory filtered through this one man, this human life, and we beheld it and we believed. You see, as we go through this gospel, what I'm challenging you to do, 
I'm challenging you to not only bear witness to the signs that John gives us and the sayings and the, and the symbols, the symbolic fulfillment of Israel's structures. I'm challenging you to see the glory. I'm challenging you to reach out to heaven and reach out to the Holy Spirit and invite God to open the eyes of your heart. So we're going to read these verses again together. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. Let's read them from our hearts, from our diaphragm here. Here we go. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Oh, what a beautiful song. What a beautiful rhythm. So recapping last week, if you missed the sermon, again, don't take notes. You can get the sermon online. It's already there. But I just want to recap what he's covered in verses 1 and 2 really quickly. He tells us that the universe had an absolute beginning in the finite past. The very first phrase in this gospel is in the beginning, which sounds like what? Genesis 1-1, the very first verse of the entire Bible, in the beginning, now, we, remember we said that John is teaching us that the universe came into being in the finite past, and this is affirmed in the Old Testament repeatedly. It's affirmed in the New Testament by Jesus, Paul, and the early church, the writers of Hebrews and Jude. It's affirmed by the most cutting-edge modern science in cosmology. Stephen Hawking, remember we mentioned Alexander Vilenkin, cosmologist, who said that the universe cannot exist eternally in the past. It must have come into being in the finite past. And it's also affirmed by the philosophy of science. Remember we said that it's impossible, it's logically impossible to have an infinite regress of causes. At some point you have to get back to a zero point. You have to get back to an initial cause. So here's what I want you to know. Remember this, the doctrine of... The beginning of the universe in the finite past and God creating it is the hallmark. It is the trademark belief of the Judeo-Christian faith. You pull that block out and the whole theological complex collapses in on itself. The Judeo-Christian faith, we got this from the Jews, we inherited this belief from them and we just taught it better. In Christ. And that is that in the past, the universe came into being, and God is the creator of that universe. He is the transcendent, exalted Lord who created that. And then John says, in no uncertain terms, and the word existed before the beginning began. That's my translation of this next line. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now remember we said this word was stresses the pre-existence of something. It stresses the already existing state of something. It already exists. And so in the finite past, when the universe began to exist, when beginning began, how could the word, the logos of God, be with God? Because he already was God. Because he already was God in eternity past. So with God and was God is a clear statement he is making here. So that, remember we said the grammar here makes it possible for him to say two things unequivocally. The first one is this, is that the word, the logos, 
That's what he calls the word. The Lagos is an eternal fellow in the Godhead. He is a member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. So he's with God. But then on the other hand, it allows him to say that whatever God was, the Word was. Whatever God was, the Word was. So God, in all of his infinite attributes, God is the infinite personal creator of the universe. Whatever describes him, that's what described, describes the Word as well. So those are points one and two from last week. Number three, the word is the agent of all creation. This is the third thing he wants to tell us here. Verse three, he says, through him all things were made. Very careful wording. Through him all things were made. Now, the phrase through him is the word dia. It's where we get the word diachronic or dialogic. Just normal everyday words, right? Or, or, yeah, dialogue or whatever. You could, you could think of a lot of English words with this word in it. It's a preposition, and, and, it, and it emphasizes two aspects, two clear aspects. The first one is agency, personal agency, and the second one is instrumentality. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. If you go fishing, let's say Dan Brannigan, the master fisherman, uh, gives you a call, gives you a holler, and asks you to go fishing with him, if you go with him, you're probably going to catch some fish. I mean, you just will. <laughs> he knows where they are, and he knows how to get them. Well, let me ask you a question. How do fish get caught? Do people catch fish, or do fishing poles catch fish? Which one is it? You say fishing poles? Good, good answer. Anybody else want to take a, take a stab? Thank you. Appreciate that. The answer is right here. Here's the answer. Fish get caught by people with fishing poles. The person is the agent who wills to go fishing. The person also has an instrument that he may catch fish with. And so here, what we learn about the word, the lagos, eternally with God, in eternity and with God at the beginning of the universe is this. He is not only the personal agent of creation, he's also the instrument. It was created through him. You see, in this fellowship, this fellowship of the Godhead, this fellow... This divine fellow of this fellowship has a perfectly synchronized will with the Father. And the Father wants to create creation, bring everything into existence, into existence out of absolutely nothing. And the Son's will is in perfect sync with the Father. So he is both the agent and the instrument of creation. And then he says all things. What does he mean by that? The Greek word is the word panta. And uh, part of that word, the root word is pan. And from that word, we get the word or the prefix pan. So when you go and you look at a beautiful sunset and you get a panoramic view, what are you getting? You're getting a full view, a complete, comprehensive view. That's kind of what we mean. And so this word, that is what it means. It means comprehensively everything, all things. Now, what does he mean by all things? He means all things in creation. And he says two things. First is affirmatively, he created all things that were created. So everything that is in the spectrum of creation, he did it. He is responsible for it. He is the agent and the instrument of all creation. From the Hercules, Corona, Borealis Great Wall, which is the largest known phenomena in the universe, right down to the smallest atomic 
particle, right down to the smallest molecule, the word, the logos created, was created through him. So through him all things were made. And then he says it negatively. So affirmatively and negatively. Just in case you were wondering what I was talking about, John says, nothing came into being without him. Nothing that has been made was made apart from him. Now, that sounds to me pretty comprehensive. If it's a made thing, if it's a created thing, if it is part of the temporal becoming of the universe, it was made through the agency and instrumentality of the eternal Logos, the eternal fellow in the Godhead. If it possesses any properties of having been made, it was made by the Word, through the Word. So I'm going to put up a graphic here, two circles. And thank you, Kali and Daniel, for putting these together. These look quite a bit better than the junk I have in my notes right here. So, uh, but these look good. The first circle, the first category. So John teaches there are only two categories of existence. The one on the right is the creator of all things. The one on the left is all things created. Which category does he put the word in? The one on the right. He puts him in the one on the right. Now what we learn is from eternity. He is the creator of all things. And then he's going to blow our mind a few verses later. Next week, we're going to learn that the God, God the Son from eternity, who was the creator of all things, we're going to learn that he actually came down and became part of that second circle. He became a created man. Can you imagine that? And Paul is going to explain what that means. We're going to look at a little bit of that today. So, this is affirmed by Paul. Now we're going to turn our attention to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Here's why. Here's why we're going to do that. Because this is a passage, I want you to memorize John 1, 1 through 18. You only have 10 months to do it. I think we can do it. Yeah, we can do it. The next 10 months, we are going to memorize John 1, 1 through 18 together. You can choose any version you like. Hopefully it's a good one. So I'm reading from some good ones today. Okay, so we're going to memorize that, but if you can't memorize Colossians 1, which I think all of you could, if you really put your mind and your heart to it, I think you could, but if you can't memorize the whole thing, remember the gist of this passage and just remember where it is. So you can pull it up on your iPhone or your Bible. Here's what he says about the Word, the eternal Son. He says, the Son is the image. That word is, in Latin, is imago. The word in Greek is icon, where we get the word icon. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the God who is unseen. He is the firstborn. Now, that is a title of supremacy. What do we mean by firstborn? Who is the firstborn of Isaac? Who is the firstborn? You would say, well, technically it's Esau, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, okay. So, but he's not called the firstborn. In the Old Testament, Jacob is. Why? Because God gave Jacob, the second son, the right of primogenitor, which is a technical term, meaning he gave him the rights of the estate right? The supremacy over the house. What about Israel, the nation of Israel? Why does God in the Old Testament call Israel the, my firstborn nation? Why does he call them that? Did they come before Babylon? No. Check Genesis chapter 11. Babel, the culture of Babel or ancient Babylon existed before Israel. What about Sumeria? What about Egypt? They're the first nations, but God says, you are my firstborn. You see what God is doing? So what God does is he transfers to an elect servant the rights of primogenitor, which is the right to rule over the house. This is what firstborn means here. And he makes that clear. He says he's the firstborn over all creation. He says, for in him all things were created. 
Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now we learn it isn't just through his agency and instrumentality that all things came into being. It's actually for him. Actually, the whole world will wrap up in the exaltation of Christ, God's son. He says, oh, everything in the spectrum of creation, everything you can imagine that is a created thing came into being through him and for him. And he says he is before all things. Naturally, he would be. And in him, all things hold together. Every atomic particle in the universe is held together and constituted by the Son, by the Word. And he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn, here it is, from among the dead. That means he's the first in a long line, the first in a company of resurrected saints and sons and daughters. The first in a company of resurrected saints. So that in everything he might have the supremacy, there it is. So that in everything he might have the supreme, supreme authority over all creation. Here's what he says. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness. So everything God was, the word was, to dwell or tabernacle in him. And through him, the word, the son, that is through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his shed blood on a cross. You see, God's project of salvation is not just for you and for me. God wants to save you, and that's the first step in this project of salvation. But God wants to save the whole world. God wants to reconcile all creation back to a perfect, harmonious relationship with him. You and I are first. The rest of the world is coming at his second coming. So this is what Paul teaches. And Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 teaches this as well. The early church taught this. In the past, God spoke how? Well, he spoke to our forefathers, our ancestors, through the prophets, and many times in a variety of ways, right? Plethora of ways. But in the last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance. That word means effulgence. That word means outraying. That word means the raying forth of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So there are seven things we learn from these two passages. The first is that the Son, Christ, is the exact representation exemplified and embodied of God's being in his glory. The second is that he is the firstborn given all the rights of authority over creation, the supremacy over all things. The third is that he is the agent of all creation. Everything in the spectrum of creation came into being through him. And he sustains everything by his sovereign decree. Aren't you glad that he sustains providentially the world? And he's the Lord over the church. Whatever stripe, whatever color, whatever form it may take, he is the Lord over the true church, the first in a company of resurrected sons and daughters. And he reconciles all creation, beginning with humanity, and then making peace with all creation through his shed blood on a cross. And he is the final revelation of God to man. He is the final word from God to us. And from the first century to the last, to the last day this world will know. There is not going to be any new revelation of Jesus Christ. None. 
because he is the last word of God to us. And from that day to the next, to the next time he comes, he is the final revelation of God to us. So he says, in the absolute beginning of the creation of the universe, the Lagos, God's personified self-expression of his internal mind was with God and he was God. And all creation came into being through his direct agency and nothing was made that has been made without him. Number four, the word is the source of all life and truth. The word then is the source of all life and truth. Not just new life, not just salvation life, all life and truth. He says, in him was life and that life was the light of mankind. Verse four. So what, do, what does he mean when he says, in him was the life? This, remember, he is still in the creation story. I mean, he has not left the creation story because if you go back, you might be tempted to leave it, but don't leave it because John doesn't. He, he is still there. After God creates the universe, everything in heaven and on earth, what does he do? He creates what? Light. Literal light. And then he creates life. And as I read the story, I see that there are three kinds of life that he creates. You may see something different, but this is what I see. The first one is this. He creates biological life. What, what, what is biological life? It's, well, it's simple. It's just the vital animating principle of all living things, of all living matter. And everything from plants to, uh, to animals have that. He creates biological life. It's that vital anima- animating principle of life. And then the second kind of life that he creates is sentient life. Now, this is a modern term for sure, but this just means intellectual, rational life self-aware, a moral life. The key, the trademark here, the trademark feature here is self-reflection, the ability to think about who you are. Do you know who you are? Do you know that you're not me? I hope you know that. You and I have the ability to practice self-reflection. We can reflect on who we are and what we think. We can think about what we're thinking. And then we can think about what we're going to do. And then we can do it and then reflect morally on what we've done. This is why God says, of all the trees of the field, you are free to eat. You may eat of all of them except for this one. Right? So this is a kind of moral action, a moral life that God gives us, and this is part of our sentient life. But there's more. There's one more kind, spiritual life. Spiritual life. You see, you and I have more than just biological life, biological function. You and I have more than just self-awareness or an intellectual, rational Life, you and I have a spiritual relationship with God. We are relational, communal beings. This is relational communion resulting in harmonious filial life. That's the theological definition. What that means is you and I came into existence. God brought us into existence to be in a special relationship with him. And it's the relationship of a father and a son or a father and a child. It's the relationship of a king and his vice regent, his viceroy. It's the relationship of a God, the one true God and his priest and his image in his sanctuary. It's the special relationship that you and I have that nothing else in creation really has it, not like this. And so that life that God gave us, mankind, was designed to be originally unending, an unending conscious awareness of God's presence in the light of creation and manifest in the reality of the garden. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? 
sin and death entered the picture. And now what is needed is a solution, an answer to sin and the curse of death. God's project of ruling and caretaking the entire created order has become corrupted through sin and rebellion, rebellion of his image bearers. And God has two problems in the garden. It's two. The first problem that he has is he's supposed to have a representative that represents his rule and his reign to the world, to his cosmos, to his realm. But instead of having a representative in his realm, he now has a rebel, uh, an insurrectionist. And God has another problem. Because this is not just about cosmic kingdom, this is about cosmic temple. God's world is the place that he has chosen to inhabit and rest. And God has created this place called the garden where he puts an image bearer. And that image bearer is supposed to represent him to the rest of the world. So God doesn't just have a rebel on his hands in his realm. He also has a heretic. Now God has a person who goes out into the world. And what does he begin to do? He begins to think falsely. Falsely about the nature of God, the nature of the world, and the nature of human relationships. What is the very next story after the fall in the garden? Cain and Abel. And what happens to poor Abel? He gets bludgeoned to death with a rock. I mean, in the very next story, we see that darkness comes through sin, spiritual death, this cutting off of relationship with God. And so the harmony and creation we were supposed to experience, the life, the relational accord that we were supposed to experience with God, this affectionate spiritual life, we're dead now. And instead of having eternal life, Adam and his descendants now have a shelf life. Anybody else feel like you're getting closer to your shelf life? Now we have an expiration date, and we never were supposed to have that. And instead of the perfect unity and harmonious community life, we have strife and division and murder and factionalism. And instead of the abundant and plentiful life that we were supposed to have in God's sanctuary, God's holy place where he manifests his presence to his creation, instead of that, we now have an arduous, difficult subsistence of foraging for mere, mere resources and scraping by for desperate survival. And instead of the light of revelation in God, minds become darkened. No wonder men make up stories about God. No wonder people make up stories about the nature of the world. No wonder people make up stories about the nature of human relationships. Does that surprise you? Why? Because we lost our life. And when the life went out, the light went out. We've gone into a world with a darkened mind, and Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 2, that's exactly the state that God finds us in. Our, futil our minds have been darkened in the futility of our thinking. We can't even think right. We just... We are grasping and groping around in the dark. But when the Holy Spirit comes and breathes life on the mind, when the Holy Spirit comes and we receive his life, the life that is only in the sun, the light turns on. We can begin to think and see clearly. We can begin to think and see clearly. I'll leave you with the story. God's project of salvation is to save the man and save the world, the good world that God created the man in. And to save them and bring them back into reconciled relationship, back into a harmonious state with himself. A story about a little boy who loved puzzles. 
Well, he loved all kinds of puzzles, and that's what people would get him for his birthday and for Christmas, and he would sit for hours and put these puzzles together, and his dad was going through a magazine in the living room one day, and he found this page, and it, it was a fold-out page, and it was a picture of the world, the whole world, and you were supposed to tear it out and cut out all these pieces so you could make the puzzle, and so that's just what he did. He tore it out, and then he cut along the lines, and he had about 250 pieces sitting there, a pretty decent puzzle for a four-year-old kid. So he laid it on the coffee table, and the little boy came in, and he said, hey, hey, uh, buddy, Jack, I want you to put that uh, puzzle together. And he said, okay, daddy. So he picked it up, and he took it into the kitchen, and he put it down on the kitchen table, and he began to work feverishly with scotch tape on this puzzle to put it together. And his dad thought, man, he'll be doing this all day long. Get him out of my hair. This will be great. Ten minutes later, he comes back with that puzzle done. And he lays it on the coffee table, and he says, see, daddy, I, I, I fixed the world. He said you're a genius kid. How did you do that so quickly? He said, oh, it was easy. He said, I figured out that on the other side, there's a picture of a, a, a man and a woman. And when I fix the people, I fix the world. And that's what God wants to do too. The word from eternity came and he wants to fix some people, right? He wants to bring new life to your heart to your soul, and to your mind. And eventually, he's going to fix the world. But he's going to save us. And you and I get the privilege of going out into that world and proclaiming his good news. We get the privilege of going out there and telling people that God loved you so much. He loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whosoever, anyone who believes in him would not perish but have what? Eternal, everlasting life. And you can have that life today. You can have it right now. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. You're here this morning and you may not have this life, not yet, and you need it. And you know you can't get it from your marriage. You can't get your life from your spouse. You can't extract life from your career. You can't extract life from the great outdoors or leisure. Those, those things are only temporary. The only eternal life that you can get is in the Son, in His name, who reveals the glory of the one and only God. So will you put your trust in Him right now? Will you stop waiting? Stop waiting. Don't you dare walk outside that door. Don't you walk out that door until you have put your trust and your faith in the risen Savior, Jesus, because in him is life and in him is the light. You say, well, I can't see it. Well, you need the life. You need to receive his newness of life today. And it's very simply done this way. You confess what is true. God, we confess that you are the one true God and that the Son, the Lagos, the Word from eternity God, that he is our savior and that he became flesh and revealed your glory, the glory of the one and only God. And God, today we behold that glory and your life is in it. Will you just allow God to turn the light on in your mind and in your heart right now? God, we confess what is true about you and we confess that your son, your incarnate son from eternity hung on a cross, a Roman crucifix and bled and died for our sins. He bore our iniquities and in exchange for our sin and death, he gives us life and he gives us eternity with you and God, we receive it we confess it as true. God, we are sinners. 
We can't bootstrap our salvation. We can't make ourselves more holy or likable or beautiful to you. Right now, God, we just confess what is true. We have fallen. God, we have fallen and we cannot possibly help ourselves. But we can do nothing about our predicament. But by your grace and what you have done, you have saved us and we receive it right now. Will you receive it? Just reach out and take it. Just open your empty hands and reach for this grace that God holds out for you. We confess these things in Jesus' mighty, powerful name. Amen.